I have it written right here above my desk where I have the quality of my work reflects the quality of my relationships. And I just understood that. I had it written in my desk in City Hall. I've had it written in every office that I've had since. You know, in governing or in doing this community work, it's the relationships that are, are the thing. They're the work. Hello, welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Jimmy Gwaitch for joining us today. Uh, Native Lights is, at its core, a place for Native folks to tell their stories. Every week, we have wonderful conversations with great guests from a whole lot of different backgrounds. These amazing people are policymakers, healers, artists, a bunch of different things, you name it. And we're hearing about their gifts, how they're sharing them with their community that and a lot more. And it's our privilege to help amplify fellow Native voices, and we're continuing that today. Absolutely. We're not just continuing with that uh, overall goal today, but we're also continuing our conversation with Robert Lilligren today. Indeed. Robert Lilligren served for 12 years as a vice president of the Minneapolis City Council. He is currently the president and CEO of the Native American Community Development Institute. He serves on uh, plenty of Boards for several nonprofit organizations. He's a house developer and a year-round bike commuter, um, and he lives in South Minneapolis with his husband Steve. Last time we talked about his various roles that he does professionally. Today we're going to hear about his perspective on leadership and what moved him towards the path that he's on. So, Great. here's the rest of that conversation. Okay, Robert, you know, we've talked about the work that you're doing and and the hats you wear. And I'm looking to dig a little bit more into what encouraged you to wear so many hats, perhaps. So um, what got you to where you are today? What what moves you to work in this realm? Yeah, so I wasn't one of those people that had this well-laid plan. You know, I... I get up in the morning and I'm not really sure what door I'm going through and, yeah. you know, hopefully I'll find something interesting on the, on the other side. I will say, and this really, this understanding has come sort of later in life, but as I look back now that I have, you know, some time and age and perspective, I really see that it was a lot of the values that my Ojibwe father really demonstrated, you know, care for the whole community, care for Mother Earth, you know, uh, and that really laid this foundation of always seeking justice, you know, environmental justice, economic justice social justice. A lot of my early activism was around transportation and uh, advocating for promoting, you know, non-motorized active transportation, opposing freeway expansion, you know, in in my neighborhood because it had um, the biggest impact on black and brown people, right? Low-income people on our health. And uh, so there was a strong sense of justice, you know, and uh, that's what One of the things that prompted me to run for the city council in uh, 2000, 2001, and getting elected to the Minneapolis City Council 
profoundly changed my trajectory in life. And I really didn't ever see myself as any kind of an executive. You know, I was a small business person, you know, with my housing and, and things were very community based. And, uh, and when I got elected to the city council, it was just, it was such a game changer. And I learned so much about myself and that I actually kind of had a knack for governing and for understanding a bunch of things. I'm, you know, I'm sort of have a sort of tension span. So I'm, I like having 50 things going on in my, <laughs> in my brain at once. And, and that, um, that I understood early and I have it written right here above my desk where I have the quality of my work reflects the quality of my relationships. And I just understood that I had it written in my desk in city hall. I've had it written in every office that I've had since. And, and so, you know, in governing or in doing this community work, it's the relationships that are, are the thing. They're the work. They uh, are worthy of your time and attention. And, uh, I had a mentor who taught me early on in my city hall, city council career that um, you can never behave. There's never a last act, she said. So you can never behave. This is our last conversation. Or I can never treat you in a way that would make you not want to talk to me again. And, uh, you know, today, uh, today's friend, uh, enemies, maybe tomorrow's friends, you know, and so... So that working in city council in this kind of odd environment where your 12 council colleagues, you know, are, are, uh, are important to you. So, you know, you need seven votes to get something done on a 13 member council. And so I always had to be able to put at least put seven votes together for something. And, and I did that by not pissing off a lot of people, you know, and by finding ways to compromise and finding ways to say, say really horrible things in really nice ways sometimes. <laughs> and uh, but again, never thinking that this is our last conversation, and always tending to to the relationships. And and uh, and so when I got out of city council, you know, after 12 years, I had those relationships. I hadn't made a ton of enemies, I, you know, rather I'd made a bunch of supporters. And so how do I continue to grow that network of people, many who of whom, you know, control resources or can can help move the causes that I that I really care about forward. And that quote is, Qual the quality of my work reflects the quality of my relationships? Correct. I'd like to talk just a little bit more about getting into leadership roles and kind of being in that, that spotlight role when, you know, there are a lot of us who may be a little bit more shy. So, Robert, what does leadership mean to you and, and how do you see leadership play out in our communities, in, in unassuming places perhaps? Sure. You know, pretty much every politician I know, and I know a lot of them, I think would describe themselves as shy. I would describe myself mm -hmm. as shy mm -hmm. as well. And then something happened in their lives that made stepping out of that shy place less important than stepping forward, you know, that yes. there was something <laughs> I needed to do. And uh, and for me, that was to raise awareness of some really bad decisions that were being made that would have really negative impacts on my neighbors in Phillips. So 
predominantly low wealth, black and brown people. And so, so I really stepped forward to make a point. You know, I really didn't think I was going to get elected <laughs> or I wasn't sure I was going to get elected. And so, uh, and then that leadership thing, you know, it's so interesting. When I, when I first got elected to the Minneapolis City Council in 2001, I, um, was got outreach from the Kennedy School and, mm-hmm. and at Harvard, and they have a, a program for senior executives in local government. So I got invited to apply. I went there. I'd only been in office a few months, you know, and but I had never done anything like this before, and I knew I needed some tools to um, to get me through. And so at the at Kennedy School. Uh, they taught us first I was like boot camp kind of how to survive your time in government, but really more about the practical aspects of leadership, of exercising leadership. And uh, you know, I learned some great sayings. One of them was exercising leadership means disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. Mm. You know. Uh, <laughs> so you know you're making progress when people on either side of an issue are equally as angry at you. You know, and uh, but also to see yourself in a role when you're exercising leadership, and that's the role that you take off at certain parts and really sort of re acknowledge yourself. They actually had to sort of ritualize that so, uh, so we didn't feel so personally uh, at risk when exercising leadership, but even on simple things, you know, uh. Primates as a group look at but their leaders. So, you know, if you wanted some authority, stand up. If you can stand up, suddenly then people are looking up at you. They're giving you some authority, you know. Uh, and, and to be really aware that and this was so alien to my experience to this point, but that, but these are dynamics that you can, that I can, uh, 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 direct, sort of manipulate, you know, uh, frame that I had a lot more leadership ability than I ever thought that I would have, but, but that it's not magical. It's not, you know, these are really practical things you can do to exercise leadership. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're hearing from Robert Lilligren, who is the director and CEO of the Native American Community Development Institute and is a Metropolitan Council member. In this part two edition, we're talking more about his personal journey on his professional path. But I was looking at, you know, some bio of you on on the internets and I saw that you are a, also a classically trained singer. Is <laughs> right. that true? And yeah. and could you just tell us about that? Yeah, I haven't sung forever. When I first uh, ran for city council back in the early 2000s, I made this vow. I'm not. I'm always going to sing. I'm always going to sing. And of course, that was one of the first things that fell by the wayside. But yeah, I started oh, studying. Man. I know. I started studying voice when I was in high school and did a lot, fair amount of performing then, studied uh, music in college, uh, then kind of put it aside for a while. And uh, and that was too, too bad. And really kind of returning to singing at about 30, maybe, was really one of the things that activated a a lot of passions for me in my life. I mean, I can point back to that as an important step in kind of getting more engaged in my 
my community and everything. And then uh, back in the late 1990s, just before I ran for city council, I was uh, launching a lounge singer career. And so I had this whole like lounge nice. singer persona oh. and I did a couple of gigs and built out and built out my whole book. And, and I joke that then I learned that um, the world of lounge singing is sort of a dog eat dog world where there's always someone waiting in the wings to, to stab you in the back and take your place. So I went into politics instead. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Like Got to um, decolonize the lounge singing culture. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, you know, I did a fair amount of classical. I did, you know, performed in some operas. I did uh, recitals, actually, at a few mm. different composers. Reynaldo Ahn, for example, that I kind of specialized in. So did did some oh. recital work. Oh, that's so that's fun! Awesome. Well, you're in yeah. good company here with with a couple of singers too. So <laughs> yeah, but what kind of do you think traditional stuff or what do you think? Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> just like writing songs and singing them. Like I studied voice cool. at Berkeley College of Music. Um, nice. Yeah, and Mr. Cole wow. Primo is a ridiculous singer. Like really good too. So. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> Yeah, I did a lot of. Yeah, I did choir in high school. Um, right. Then was had the opportunity to do to do the you know what's all state choir. And oh, I then, was too all state choir here in in Minnesota or yeah in Minnesota. Were you uh, what uh, did you sing like tenor or bass? In high school, I sang baritone. No, I no I sang baritone. Tenor. Yeah, nice, but nice. I was in all state choir in 1977. So <laughs> I'm guessing you weren't even born. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. Uh, no comment on that, but, but yeah, yeah. So then kind of transitioned into like more, you know, sing, singer songwriter stuff. So, cool. but yeah, I was just, I, I saw that and I was very interested that, yeah. that you're a singer. That's great. Well, and it was funny too, because when we were talking to Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, like she was also studying <laughs> voice, vocal performance too, right. um, years ago. So, you know, and then, <laughs> you never know. Well, and one of the things during my, I just, I always looked for, you know, uh, educational opportunities. And so one summer I participated in a workshop, a month-long workshop, excuse me, by a maestro, a guru named Wesley Bulk. He's a founder of the Minnesota Opera. But he pioneered this way of performing. He called it radiant performing. And so it was sort of balancing your communicators. You have your, you know, your face, your voice, and your body. And, you know, opera singers stereotypically you think of the you know sort of stiff you know arms out kind of you know not necessarily balanced but it takes so much energy to get your voice to do that you know and mm -hmm. so it was working at balancing these three your face your voice and your body and when they balanced it was amazingly powerful to watch someone you know and it was almost like a like a flash went off and when other students kind of hit that balance and one of the things he taught us is that you know people will interpret what they see on your face what they hear from your mouth you know what you, what you do with your body but it doesn't necessarily mean that's what needs to be going on in your head you know at Thank the you. time and so really learning to be deliberate on manipulate those things. And that's been very helpful in politics where I could be sitting there <laughs> plotting someone's demise or something that on my face, I just look like I'm the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> uh, gave away one of my secrets. 
<laughs> oh, Usually no. you got to pay for that. I like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's great. Uh, cool. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I don't know. I, I just love hearing that, you know, people just go one way and kind of look for adventure and passion and then kind of just follow what interests them. And, you know, just let, let life be exciting, I guess. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and then also, you know, now that I'm uh, getting into my elder years and I can look back in the interesting twists and turns, how many of them in my life have been completely accidental? You know, sometimes real accidents like my motorcycle accident that ended up giving me a lot of time to engage in other things or, uh, but yeah, sort of wanting, running for city council, winning city council, you know, there's just going to Little Earth. That was a hugely unexpected turn in my life. I got, uh, there was a sudden loss of leadership there. The board reached out to me to step in in an interim capacity overnight, literally. And, uh, and then how much that's influenced this last part of this part of my life. So, so yeah, I'm just kind of a bunch of accidents. <laughs> <laughs> Happy accidents. Yeah. And there's, oh, I feel like sometimes accidents. there's so much stuff we want to do in our lives, but we don't have to do it all right away. <laughs> mm-hmm. We could, I could be like, you know, Maybe I'll do that in 10 years after I exhaust <laughs> all my energy in this area. So, yeah, that's great. Do you have any, you know, tips, words of wisdom for those, you know, looking to get into these leadership roles? And Yeah. Uh, so when I first decided to run for city council, a friend of mine gave me a book. I'd never done anything political, never done anything like that before. And this friend gave me a book called How to Win a Local Election. And I just started following it step by step. You know, very quickly I realized it was organizing, which was something I was familiar with. But the very first uh, step was direction to research the office that I was interested in, because I guess it happens fairly frequently that people run for office, get elected, and then don't link the office that they're in. So I did that. The second step was a personal inventory and asked me these questions that really kind of surprised me. And, you know, how do you handle rejection and things, but really most of them got to the reasons, the motives I had for wanting to run for office. And I found that so valuable because as I spend, you know, time in elected office, I have that document to go back to from when I was, you know, relatively pure within politics. And you could see, you know, it was that I had legitimate desires to do good for people, you know, uh, and not for myself. So I guess if there's a bit of wisdom, that would be the first one would be you do this for others, not for yourself. And I think another piece would be to learn the environment that you're interested in and find someone or some people who you admire, who have values that align with yours, who you can learn to trust and really develop a relationship there. And uh, the almost everybody I know would respond to someone that came to them, you know, open and authentically, openly and authentically to learn, to learn. Almost everybody I know would love to pass in leadership, would love to pass knowledge, opportunities on to others. And and really there's, you know, we have um, 
a generational shift going on in a lot of leadership here in the Native community. And those of us who are a little older are being very, very deliberate about making sure that we're creating opportunity, that we're being supportive of young and emerging leadership, that we're making room at tables that we might have access to. And so, so building that mentor relationship, I think, is, is really key. Being clear about your motives for wanting to do this is is really key as well. If you're interested in politics and running for political office, I always recommend to people to get involved in campaigns, local campaigns. They're volunteer-driven uh, uh, initiatives, and, and you will be amazed at how much you learn even through being involved in one city council campaign or a, a house representative campaign, your local campaigns. You're going to grow a network. You're going to gain so much knowledge about how how the process works, demystifying the process. Mm. All right. Well, Chimi Gwech, for your knowledge and conversation today, very much appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for asking, Chimi Gwech. Yeah, thank you, Robert. Yeah, have a great one, and we'll uh, stay in touch. And Cool. Yeah, just continue doing the good work you're doing. All right, we'll do. Miigwech and gigawabamin. Yeah, great spending time with you. Yeah, gigawabamin. Oh, he's so great. I love that quote he has over his desk. <sighs> Quality of my work reflects the quality of my relationships. Hola. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's really cool. Well, in case you can't see, right next to me, I have a post-it note. Yeah, what is it? It says, dignity of risk. <laughs> and I heard it from somebody in another conversation um, a couple months ago, and I just loved it. I thought it was so pertinent to kind of being vulnerable, being open, even if you're shy and speaking up. Yeah. Self-consciousness can only hold us back so far, I think, until it becomes necessity Mm -hmm. to really speak up and get out there and risk something. Yeah, I I do love that he, you know, he said that a lot of the politicians he's talked to, or all of them said that they're shy and then Mm -hmm. something happened and it's just... It's very relatable because I consider myself shy, and I'm sure there's a lot of our vi- uh, listeners who consider themselves shy, but... Just know we're shy, too. <laughs> yeah, plenty of shy people making moves, for sure. Oh, my goodness. So. Uh, yes. <laughs> I feel that. Cool. So thank you to Robert Lilligren. Yes. Robert Lilligren is the president and CEO of the Native American Community Development Institute and is a Metropolitan Council member. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Now that we've heard from Robert Lilligren, we thought it would be great to highlight a new member of the Minnesota Native News team. Emma Needham of Red Lake has been reporting with Minnesota Native News over the last couple months, and we thought it would be great to share her latest story from Minnesota Native News about Ojibwe language revitalization efforts by the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe and Mimgwesi Sutherland. Leslie Harper is a member of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe and has worked in language revitalization efforts on both a local and national level for the past 25 years. 
Nina saw Leslie Harper. Leslie helped to create an Ojibwe immersion school in the Leech Lake community in the early 2000s. Her community brainstormed and came up with an approach to bring back the language and culture together. We started planning what would a school look like in our community. What does education mean to us as Ojibwe people? What we proposed was providing education through the medium of Ojibwe language, all subjects being taught in Ojibwe language instead of English. Leslie Harper is now president of a volunteer organization called the National Coalition of Native American Language Schools and Programs. When I took Ojibwe courses last year, Mimigwese Sutherland was my teacher. He teaches Ojibwe language courses and leads language tables a few nights a week via Zoom for the Minneapolis American Indian Center. How I learned Ojibwe is uh, when I was a kid, I was a fluent speaker. Back then, I had to learn English and French when I was a kid in schools. So slowly over time, because uh, I grew up speaking Ojibwe and uh, living the old Ojibwe lifestyle, when I saw English speakers, I, I really envied them. I kind of left behind my uh, the Ojibwe language and the Ojibwe teachings and how I live, how I grew up. I wanted to be like everybody else, like English speaking. Mamagwese was in his late teens when he realized he could no longer reply back to his mother. That's when he went to college to relearn Ojibwe. So sometimes I, I kind of like, I'll, I'll stay away from like Ojibwe language and culture stuff once in a while, but that, 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 that's, that's there in me because of the uh, racism I experienced growing up. So sometimes it's a battle to like to get past that. Teaching Ojibwe language is not what Mimigwese set out to do, but he believes that his experience, teachings, and conversations with people around him led him to that path. Language and culture teachings often come from elders. As elders pass on, it impairs a community's cultural and language capacity. This is Leslie Harper again. We've been at a critical need, and we said this 20 years ago, right, that we have a critical need to revitalize our language because we have, you know, a few hundred people. For me here at Leech Lake, uh, 20 years ago, we were able to say we have, you know, a couple hundred speakers. And that was a feeling of critical need and critical loss to us. Mamie Goise Sutherland explained that his experience is that language revitalization is both getting better and worse at the same time. Because of Zoom, we can connect with elders now over long distances because before, in order, if you wanted to see an elder, you had to go to their place. But nowadays, because of Zoom, you can just like hit them up like this and then just be in a meeting. Mamigwese says that our ancestors and ceremonies are exactly the reason why people should speak Ojibwe and that our ancestors are already ahead of us. We had a reason why it's important to speak Ojibwe to them because that's, that's who you're talking to. You're talking to our ancestors. Some people were afraid of uh, what's going to happen to the future when the elders pass on. You know, like everybody thinks all the culture is going to die off. But then we were told that the original teachers are the spirits. And they said in the future, when the younger generation brings back the language, they're also going to bring back the spirits and the spirits are going to teach them. Both the U.S. House and Senate are considering new bills that would establish a National Native American Language Resource Center to honor Congress's obligation to tribes and Indigenous communities to protect and promote original languages. For Minnesota Native News, I'm Emma Needham.
Thanks to Emma for that report. You can check out that story and many more over at minnesotanativenews.org. Native Lights is a production of Minnesota Native News and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's community, and is supported by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Native Lights is also available as a podcast. Just search for Native Lights in your favorite podcast app. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Giga Wabamin. Giga Wabamin. <laughs>